everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. Uh, I think everybody knows me by now, but my name is Sarah Dong, and I am a MedPeds ID fellow. But I am so excited for everyone to meet my co-host, Arthur. You want to jump in and tell everyone about yourself? Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm Arthur Jackson. I'm an ID doctor based in Cork in Ireland. Um, just a bit about me, I graduated with my medical degree from Trinity College in Dublin in 2001, and my specialist training included two years in Malawi running clinical trials in the area of cryptococcal meningitis, and I followed up with a year of clinical fellowship in UNC at Chapel Hill. So thanks for having me. Um, so as some of the listeners may have noticed, this episode is going to be a little bit different. This is our first sort of introduction into smaller mini episodes that we're going to call the Febrile Digest, uh, which I realize would be a better pun if we were GI doctors, but uh, I could not find a better ID related one. So we're going to try to intersperse these when we can in the in the weeks in between our case-based episodes. Um, and these are all going to be shorter, so 30 minutes or less. And some cluster of either papers or interesting facts or interviews. And it's really just a discovery space for us to talk about items that don't fit in the usual format. And I thought I would just say that it's obviously not going to be comprehensive. And we are going to share papers that we find interesting, <laughs> um, but that we think other people will also enjoy having an update about. Arthur, do you want to share one first? Yeah, thanks very much. So, so the first paper I'm going to talk about is the New England Journal paper from um, last month. And it's the paper we've all been waiting for, as having heard the press releases. It's the um, oral uh, Nirmatrelvir, so basically the Paxlovid study. So it's looking. It was looking at the um, giving oral uh, Paxlovid um, 300 with 100 of ritonavir boosting um, twice a day for five days. Um, it's, it was double-blinded RCT phase 2-3 with 28 days as the follow-up point. And uh, they identified a huge um, benefit to being on the Nermatrelvir. So basically a relative risk reduction of 90% of the composite endpoint. And the composite endpoint was um, looking at hospitalizations or deaths. Um, there were no deaths in the um, Paxlovid arm. There were 66 of the composite death versus hospitalization in the control arm and 1.3% uh, mortality in that control arm as well. So um, it was interesting. It was greater than 1,000 enrolled into each arm. The greatest effect was found among those at highest risk. And I thought it was interesting. The, the Their high risk, these were only high risk patients that were enrolled in the study. They had to be within five days of symptoms. They had to have some symptoms. Um, but their high risks weren't necessarily extremely high risk. They considered older age a high risk, of course. They considered smoking a higher risk. You only needed one risk to qualify. About 60% of two risks are more. But basically, they, they certainly found that there was a, a large relative risk reduction. And what was interesting in the sub-analyses was that the it seemed that you got more of a, a risk reduction for the higher risk group. So as the ages went higher, as there were greater um, comorbidities, it, it seemed that the effect was bigger. The biggest question that I would say relates to this is the, the enrollment was between July and December 2021. And we all know that the landscape has changed since then. And so we're now in an Omicron landscape and how even how relevant is this study um, for the, the current climate we're seeing and, uh, and what would we, would we be thinking of in terms of numbers needed to treat in an Omicron uh, landscape? 
So I just thought it was, it was very interesting. Um, obviously safe as well. There was no significant side effects. The Kaplan-Meier graphs looked looked very impressive. A very wide um, display as, as you as you went along. So so basically, um, I, I felt it was, I felt it was very good. Any thoughts on it? Yeah, I haven't used it as well. I think it's been a little biased because I've been on service on the Pete side a little bit more recently. But I have been saving because um, even though it was safe, I always think about drug drug interactions. And I've seen that there's a lot of resources with good tables, either in treatment guidelines or I actually think there was um, like a video or paper in the annals of internal medicine. Just thinking about that for the couple patients that would have, you know, major interactions with Paxlovid or I guess I should say Nermatrelvir, <laughs> which is harder to say. Yeah. We um, we haven't yet got access to it in Ireland. It's coming out hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So I know that we have some access to it. I just personally haven't um, uh, given very much. And the um, like, we have plenty of experience prescribing in the setting of ritonavir, and in mm. this uh, in in the HIV world, and in the setting of um, only a five day treatment course. I'm yeah. not foreseeing there being too complex a, an issue, but it is important to. Um, cross-reference with the other the other medications of the patient. Yeah, totally true. Listen, I'd like to hear you. You've got a, a few <laughs> studies as well. Uh, I feel like it's kind of a rite of passage as a physician to be confused by pneumococcal vaccine, which is why I picked. Uh, it's actually about a month old now, but there were new recommendations in MMWR, so Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, on the use of the 15-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine and the 20-valent. Um, so these are based on the ASIP, so Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices in the States. So these, I'm going to say PCV15 and PCV20 were approved last year. 15 and 20 have the same serotypes as PCV13 plus more. And then I had to look this up. PCV20 has all the ones in PCV15 with others. And then PCV20 has 19 of the serotypes in common with PPSV23, which um, I would not have known that off the top of my head, so I thought I would include it. The report essentially recommended for those who are 65 and older or those who are, I think it was 19 to 64 with underlying conditions, to either get PCV20 alone for those who haven't received any sort of pneumococcal vaccine or PCV15 followed by PPSV23 a year or more later. Um, although they put a note in there that you could shorten that interval in certain patients like those who are immunocompromised. Overall, it's it's a little bit simpler. And, you know, if a, if an adult has already received the PPSV23 before, they recommend that you could get the PCV20 or 15 a year or more after their last PPSV23. I actually have an app on my phone. Uh, it's called Pneumorex, and it it includes the recommendations for CDC, which I used to use to double check every time I uh, was figuring out who needed which pneumococcal vaccine and when. I don't have a sense for with insurance coverage or vaccine supply how quickly we'll we'll immediately get to giving all our patients PCV twenty or fifteen. But I think exciting and just if people know that there's an update they can go look it up <laughs> like we yeah. always do well i think i think it's very welcome that something would be slightly simpler <laughs> um, i have to say i get i get a little bit lost in the acronyms yeah yeah well what do you have next 
I came across a really interesting article that ties in with uh, the one that's been a kind of a clinical tidbit over the last few years um, from the um, antimicrobial agents and chemotherapy. You've got um, a brief report. Is the success of kefazolin plus ertapenem in MSSA bacteremia based on the release of interleukin-1 beta? So the title might scare you away, but it's actually really interesting when you when you get into it. So basically, um, previous case studies and small series have shown pretty good in vivo efficacy to clear persistent MSSA bacteremia. But I always struggled to explain to people how it was working and what was happening. Um, and I've used it myself a few times and, and found it to have a, a really excellent effect. Uh, um, so um, in, my, in my small personal experience, I, I was looking for, for reasons. Um, so this came out and identified that when you give kefazolin and ertapenem, you stimulate the IL-1B release from peripheral blood monocytes. And a lack of IL-1B has been associated with persistence of Staph aureus bacteremia. And um, so what does ILB, uh, IL-1B do? It stimulates neutrophil recruitment and enhances your clearance of MSSA from that. So basically, the antibiotic is not acting at a level of engaging with the bacteria or not just acting at the level of engaging with the bacteria. It's acting at an immune modulator for, for the host. They, they did this just to get into the nitty gritty, a very small bit about the nitty gritty of this. What they did is they analyzed the release of IL-1B from, from these monocytes in the when they added kefazolin on its own, ertapenem on its own, and kefazolin ertapenem together. And then they did it with monocytes that were also exposed to Staph aureus and looked to see how much IL-1, IL-1B was released in each of these settings. And they found that there was a synergistic effect with kefazolin and ertapenem. Um, the, the one thing that made me that I was asking at the end of it was whether it may be of some benefit in adding it to something like vancomycin for an MRSA infection. Because if you're trying to stimulate your own host uh, monocytes, Perhaps um, the antimicrobial susceptibility for that aspect of it may not be relevant. So, so um, I, I just thought it was really interesting, and uh, and I, I think it's uh, it just answered a question that I've had kind of in the back of my mind. Yeah, it's really it's always interesting to get a better sense of why, but also a reminder of how or how little we know about certain things, and even in Staphylococcus, our favorite yeah. ID bug. What have you got next? So I have an update on the POET trial. The five-year outcomes for the POET trial were published in the New England Journal. Just as a refresher for those who are less familiar, the POET trial is partial oral treatment of endocarditis. And they looked at step-down therapy to oral antibiotics for patients with left-sided endocarditis with strep. Uh, Enterococcus faecalis, Staph aureus, and coag-negative staph. And so there's about 200 patients who remained on IV therapy for their treatment, and then about 200 patients who ultimately were stepped down to oral antibiotics after a at least 10-day um, IV course up front. And so there's been um, the publications from before show that oral was non-inferior to the ongoing IV therapy um, initially at six months, and then there was no indications that people were failing at three years. And then this is looking at the outcomes after five years, um, which are based on the primary composite outcome, which is a composite of death from any cause, 
unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic events, and relapse of positive blood cultures after six months. And so at five years, the primary composite outcome had occurred in 66 patients, which was about a third of those who stepped down to oral antibiotics. And in 90 patients or 45% in the group that had continued IV therapy. And that difference, it seems like, was driven by just a lower incidence of any cause death in the group who um, had oral therapy. I don't think it's surprising that it continues to be effective. I guess when I think about it, I kind of would suspect that if they were going to have relapses, that it would be early on, honestly, in the first couple months. So I, I don't know that this changes anything, but I think it's just exciting to see a continued positive effect there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I the it was reasonably small numbers in the get go in the original study, and I don't think in my area anyway. I don't think it's been practice changing. I don't think that we've changed our standard of care. I wonder will this data perhaps lead us to consider the idea of leading into a larger trial um, because of the absolute benefits of getting people out of hospital earlier. Getting them, getting them off of uh, IV therapy earlier. So I think it's really interesting to see this, and it's obviously at least as safe. And it's hard to say that uh, it's hard to conclude anything about the the mortality rates. Especially this is obviously a, a, a comorbid mm-hmm. group of people who get endocarditis usually. So when you get out to ten years, you're you're expecting to have a at five ten years, you're expecting the mortality rate to, yeah. to increase increase. All right, what do you have next? I, there was um, an interesting paper in The Lancet looking at, it was kind of the follow-on of the FLARE study, and it was looking at the, the long-acting injectable agents for treating HIV. So basically, um, it gave me a little kind of reminder of the, the structure of the FLARE trial in the first place, and then it talked about what this really talked about was a practical implementation aspect of it. So just to talk about the FLARE trial in the first place, they had a, a large number of people and they were looking for, um, they were putting them onto a dolutegravir-based regimen initially, so an integrase inhibitor-based regimen, and then they randomized them to um, standard of care or to, to continuing this, the oral arm or switching them to injectable cabotegravir-rilpivirine. However, because of safety questions before this had ever been done, they decided to have a four-week um, introduction or a four-week lead-in with oral therapy to make sure the patient tolerated it before starting um, intramuscular therapy. So this now comes in at the um, 100-week mark. They decided that they would offer all the people who had started off on the oral therapy, the, the, the standard of care arm, you might say, the dolutegravir-based therapy. And they offered each of those people the opportunity to, to withdraw from the study completely or to switch to cabotegravir-rilpivirine. But they did give them the option of skipping the oral lead-in. So they said, you can come in the way the study was designed or you can come in with a straight up, we will start you with a, a, the intramuscular injection. And it was a, and it was interesting. It was almost in a, a 50-50 split um, for the group. So with 50-50 choosing I will go with the original protocol of a four-week lead-in versus I will go straight into the um, the injectable. And basically, they found, and the reason they were able to do this is that there were no safety signals coming through at that point from the data they'd collected at that point. 
And, and fundamentally, they found that there was no safety signal coming through when they went this way. They continued showing that it was extremely highly effective, no safety signal, and, and that this is an option going forward. The, the Going forward, the questions remain exactly, should this be monthly or two-monthly? And there's, there's a couple of different ways of doing this. And the the question that I have just from a practical point of view is that this is obviously the future for a number of my patients, but what, um, how am I going to start it in my clinic? Because it actually takes quite a big resource. And these patients who we're seeing once every six months at the moment, we're going to have to see them six times more frequently if we have to inject them once a month. And uh, how are we going to do that um, with our restraints on capacity in our in our clinic and the like? So it it's a, it's a, it's a, I just think it's very interesting to see this and the lead on from this is how to translate it into, into real life. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's, that's a question. How do, how do we do it? Yeah. And the, and obviously is in, we do it by doing it, but we just have to figure out, um, just there are, there are nitty gritty practicalities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my next one was, is actually a review So there was a Fever of Unknown Origin review in the New England Journal um, from Drs. Hadar and Singh. And this will be quick. You know, I mentioned this because there are some really lovely tables and figures. In particular, the first figure in the paper is just a suggested algorithm on how to approach Fever of Unknown Origin, which I felt like fits pretty well with what I feel like I've done in practice and with our general tiered approach. But I think there are also a lot of really helpful components of the paper for learners as you're trying to categorize or think of these, we often say like buckets of FUO. And I think masterpiece like review articles like this really help people build those schemas and have a reference for when you have those patients who come in. And I've always found the history of where the definitions of FUO came from quite fascinating like that it's like the OG Petersdorf and Beeson which like defined what we called FUO but the fact that we don't really have a universal agreement for what this magical time frame is that classifies something in as FUO and so I really like how they the authors ended the paper by talking about that and trying to reframe FUO as you know a phenomenon of unexplained fevers that we need to figure out rather than using sort of dogma definitions from papers that are relatively old now. So I think this is particularly nice for for learners and fellows, but I think for anyone who sees these patients, it's a very welcome resource. Yeah, like I thought it was such a such an amazing work as in yeah, you you I can't remember the user word there that described it as a remarkable piece of work, <laughs> I think you said. And like it really was. It was, yeah. it was so so in depth. It was extremely good. And I loved the little historical um, uh, pieces, as you mentioned. Yeah, those are always and, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. No, it was very, very good. Wonderful piece of, of uh, academia. Yeah. So my last paper that I had was a, a very simple paper. And um, it was a European study in, in clinical microbiology and infection. So it's out of primary care. And it, it kind of tells you what you want to hear in some ways. Uh, it's not groundbreaking but it does challenge the you might sometimes hear the dogma oh once i've started an antibiotic course i have to finish it through and it challenges that concept so basically the it was an it was an open label trial obviously and they identified people who had not been on antibiotics for more than three days so less than three days 
they um, they were seen by their physician at that point. And the physician said, I don't think you need antibiotics, which you'd think probably that you should just stop antibiotics if you think I don't need you. I don't think you need antibiotics. But I suppose the concept being I, the rationale for that would be, and this is only for a respiratory infection, then the rationale would be either you've changed your mind and it's a viral infection or it was never an infection in the first place or it was a bacterial infection and you've got a, a therapeutic benefit after two and a half days. But what they decided to do is that if someone started and was clinically improved and the doctor felt there's no need for antibiotics, they analyzed, did you affect the duration of symptoms or severe symptoms by stopping the antibiotics on that day? And they randomized to either continue out the treatment course of antibiotics or stop on the day in that first three days that the physician says, hang on a sec, I don't think you need this antibiotic. And they found that there was uh, one quarter of the antibiotics used in the stop arm, and there was no statistically significant difference in the duration of severe symptoms or total symptoms. So basically, the take-home from this is don't believe the old wives' tale that once you've got antibiotics, you have to finish them. And um, it reassures you that clinical assessment is reliable and you should, in this type of setting, you should trust your clinical um, assessment and intuition. Yeah. I wonder where that, where, I'm sure it comes from something specific uh, where we got to, like, please finish the course of antibiotics that you were given by your doctor. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, it's strange. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I picked, uh, I actually selected one because it's, it seems to have popped up in the news a little bit. And, and two, I actually really like EBV and I think it's interesting. Um, but there was a paper in science entitled longitudinal analysis reveals high prevalence of EBV associated with multiple sclerosis or MS. One thing that's pretty interesting is the way they gathered this information. I, I guess I didn't really know this is, um, it essentially was a collaboration with the military, and I, I guess active duty members are screened for HIV. And you know, when they enlist, all these samples get stored at some repository at the Department of Defense. And so they they took a look at all these samples in these service members to determine their EBV serous status, and then they looked at the relationship between EBV infection and MS onset during their period of active duty. They had about a thousand cases of MS in a pool of millions of individuals, but they ultimately had about 800 MS cases and then about 1,500 controls. Actually, only one of the about 800 patients with MS were EBV negative prior to their diagnosis. And interestingly, they pointed out that that patient's last sample had been collected, I think, almost a year or more before they were diagnosed with MS. And so long story short, and not to dig into everything else, they found this uh, relationship between EBV and MS that was quite convincing. And they did look at CMV status and a several other viral infections that you can see if you pull up the paper. And then they also took a look at the serum concentrations of neurofilament light chains which is a sensitive, but it sounds like not particularly specific biomarker for neuronal axonal degeneration. And these levels were increased after infection. 
in this paper, that risk of MS was increased 32-fold after EBV infection, and that really wasn't seen in other viruses. This isn't quite a clinical paper. It's more of just getting perspective. I I mentioned it also because I saw in related news that the ECLIPSE trial, which is a phase one clinical trial for mRNA vaccines for EBV, dosed their first patient with a vaccine in either January or February. So just interesting to to think about EBV. And I, I think this has been something that people suspected, but um, this was like a, a huge, a huge group of patients that they looked at. And I thought kind of an interesting way that they were able to get the samples. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was, I thought it was really, really interesting. The, um, as you say, 10 million personnel where, where we had data from, it was just amazing. I, I like the fact that they talked specifically about the reverse causality possibility that the that MS might predispose to EBV infection and that could explain it. But they 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 analyzed it and they said no, you can't. That that doesn't come out. And and they, that was the neurofilament protein you were talking about mm. tied in with that. So so it really they really had kind of in depth analysis and and consideration. I, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. The um the, they're kind of. They get down to the bottom, uh, however, and they, they say kind of like, oh, well, perhaps perhaps you can take this to move forward and have more direct anti-EBV treatment to to treat this rather than rituximab. But but to me, that doesn't doesn't exist. As in, it's kind of like, the, <laughs> for me, it's the concept of, uh, like, I think EBV is like the weather. People keep on giving out about it, but no one does anything about it. <laughs> so... So like I I I don't know what you would do to to go after EBV in any sort of real clinical type um, type rather than apart from rituximab. Yeah, well maybe one day we'll have a vaccine. I mean, you know, they, this paper is about MS, but there are many other settings where we would love to have a vaccine for EBV. So who knows? Maybe in the future we will come back and revisit this and have something more to offer. <laughs> yeah, it'd no, be brilliant. It'd be really good. Thanks for joining, Arthur. I'm looking forward to us doing future episodes. Super. Thanks very much, Sarah. Just like our other episodes, definitely check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where we'll put links to all the articles mentioned on the show. Um, This is just another quick reminder and plug for the Febrile survey, which we're conducting to better understand how you use Febrile to teach and learn and what we can do to improve for future episodes. The survey is voluntary, anonymous, and only takes about five minutes. Um, You can find the link to the survey on the Twitter page and in the description link for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.